0: Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here with us at Valley Beit Midrash and we are so excited to engage in science and Torah learning today. We love synergies between different fields and this is one of the many that we enjoy so much. So thank you for being here for my journey in science and engineering as a Torah observant Jewish woman. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, We are thrilled to have Dr. Rosa Krajmalnik brown here with us today. Is the director of the Bio Design Center for Health through microbiomes and a professor at the School of Sustainable Engineering and the at the Built Environment at Arizona State University. She came to the US with a Fulbright Scholarship to get a PhD in environmental engineering from Georgia Tech. She was awarded an NSF Career Award, was selected Fulton Engineering Exemplar Faculty. In 2020, she was awarded Arizona Researcher of the Year by EZ Bio and has been recognized as highly cited researcher in her field by Web of Science in 2020 and 2021. She has funding for her research from many federal agencies including NIH, DOE, DOD, and NSF. She's a pioneer in research on gut uh, microbiome and uh, autism. She is auth- author of five patents and more than 120 peer-reviewed publications. She specializes on molecular uh, microbial, uh, ecology, For bioremediation, the use of uh, microbial systems for bioenergy production, and the human intestinal microbial ecology and its relationship to obesity, bariatric surgery, metabolism, and autism. Forgive me if I botched any of the science words. You can tell it's not my uh, area of expertise. But we are so thrilled to have Dr. Rosa Krajmalnik-Brown here with us to talk about my journey in science and engineering as a Torah observant Jewish woman. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Okay, I hope everyone can hear me. First of all, thank you for the invitation. Um, And I have to say that this is not my typical audience. I normally talk to microbiologists, engineers, or doctors. Um, And when Pam reached out to me and asked me if I could give a talk, I said, what do you want to talk about? And she said, science and um, Torah. And I thought, well, I don't know that I have the credentials to talk about the Torah part, even though I do know a lot about Torah and about observance, but I don't know that I have those credentials. Um, how about I tell you about my journey in science and engineering as a person that keeps Chavez and keeps a lot of the mitzvahs and, you know, it's very attached to Torah and knows a lot about Torah. And she said, that would be great. So, um, I'm going to tell you about that today. And I hope that, um, this inspires some people. So when I talk about my journey as a female and as a mom and as a Torah-observant Jewish woman, um, I hope I get to inspire others um, to show that none of this have been things that have limited me, but in the other way, they have inspired me and helped me be a better scientist, be a better mentor, be a better professor. So that's part of the message that I want to give you. Um, and so here are a few of the things where I um, feel strongly that I um, bring in the, the Jewish part and the Torah part into my everyday uh, operation um, at work in science and in engineering. And um, the first one is Tikkun Olam, which there are different definitions of Tikkun Olam. Um, The one that I embrace is repairing the world. Um, Maimonides describes this as social change or processes that is for the betterment of society or humanity or the world. And you will see how um, I feel strongly that most of the things that I do, if not everything, is tikkun alam. I believe really strongly in ashgaha pratit or divine providence and how I, God is really watching me and God is there for me. And God has been uh, part of every single one of my successes. Um, And I just, um, all the blessings that I have, I I acknowledge that um, every day. Um, I also have learned the concept of making a vessel to receive blessings. Um, And I will say over and over that I don't think I would be as successful as I am if I hadn't received blessings from above but you need to make the vessel. And in my case, making that vessel is hard work because the blessings can't come if you don't make the vessel. Um, People and connections have been extremely important in my journey. And um, I'll talk a little bit about Shabbat and holidays also during my journey. And so the outline of this presentation, um, I'm gonna tell you really briefly what my research is about. I'm happy to answer more questions later, but really briefly, just so you know. Um, I have two slides about my success. Um, one is a modified slide of what I used to pitch to President Crow about my center. Um, and another one is about my people. And I only do this because I want to count these as blessings, not because I want to brag about my success. I want to show you and I want to count these blessings. Um, and This is something that as a professor is a little bit uncomfortable, often we have to do this for promotion, for example, we have to tell a panel of people how great we are, which as a modest person is um, a little bit uh, challenging, but it's something we have to do and I see every single one of these achievements as a blessing so I'm going to state it there as a blessing, and I want to tell you about who I am where I came from my background and the journey. Um, And so. First of all, science and engineering, what is science and engineering? For me, science is looking for the truth. We're somehow trying to find the truth about something, about some process or something that is happening in the world. And engineering is applying scientific principles to produce something, to produce some good. Um, I consider myself a a hybrid between science and engineering, and all the research that happens in my lab is something that we call use-inspired. These are President Crowe's words, use-inspired research. It's research that has some use and has some function. Um, And all the research done in my lab is to help society, to help some function in society, to help people, to help the world. This is part of the tikkun olam. And so in, in short, the research done in my lab, um, you heard <laughs> the I mentioned microbial interactions and microbial ecology. And what we do is we, we work with bacteria and bacteria and archaea to provide services for society. But what are these services that we provide? We clean the water, we uh, do um, energy. Uh, we have uh, some pro- projects on energy production cleanup and water and energy production. And a big part of my research has also shifted um, to do um, human gut health, uh, which is the gut microbiome work. And all of these projects in my vision are tikkun olam. They help people, they help the world. So that is my, my perspective of my research and tikkun olam. Uh, as far as the success, I'm the founder and director of the Biodesign Center for Health Through Microbiomes. I have funding from multiple federal agencies, which this has not, is this not an easy, uh, an easy task. I'll talk a little bit about that on my journey. Um, I, I brought uh, multimillion dollars um, as a PI, as a principal investigator to ASU. I have more than 125 publications. Um, top 1% citations worldwide in 2021 and 2022. Um, I'm considered a leader in microbiome and metabolism and microbiome and autism. I have six patents granted and more patent applications in process. Um, And I have support from very prestigious sources like NIH. Um, I've given many invited talks. I don't even count them anymore. I've served every year on uh, National Institute of Health panels and I have served in National Academy academy and Science panels. A more important part for me of my job also is the personal impact that I have. I know that I have changed some lives through my teachings in the classroom. I have changed some lives um, teaching researchers in my life and raising new leaders um, in my lab. I have mentored and graduated 13 um, postdoctoral scholars graduated 12 PhD students uh, and seven master's students who are in very different positions um, around, most of them at the United States. Um, other, some of them are professors, some of them are directors at National Science Foundation, some of them work for industry, some of them have their own new company. Um, amazing, amazing people. Uh, 34 undergraduate students have done research in my lab and I've guided some honors thesis also in my lab, some of these 34 undergraduate students. And we've developed a treatment in my lab that um, I will talk a little bit about it if I have time that has changed some lives. So this is a lot and I am very happy and proud to say that I have had impact on people have been able to change lives through through my um, hopefully success. And so here's a a, a highlight of my journey and what I'm gonna talk about. Uh, First, I was born in Mexico City. I moved to Atlanta, Georgia to do a PhD where I met my husband, got married, finished my PhD. And then you will hear about how I ended up here in Chandler and Tempe, Arizona. Um, As a postdoctoral student, um, I interviewed for a faculty position, um, got promoted to associate professor, which is when we get tenure in academia promoted to professor, and now I'm a professor and center director at Arizona State University. So I was, as I said, born and raised in Mexico City, and that's where I did my undergrad. Um, I was born in Mexico City, and a little bit about my background, my great-grandparents emigrated to Mexico from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, my great grand Father Krachmalnik was one of the founders of a modern Orthodox school in Mexico City, um, Yafne. And my great-grandfather on the brown side was an actor that used to act Shakespeare in Yiddish. So he was, um, for those of you who understand the the story of Yiddish, Yiddish was very strong in culture. He was like part of the Bundistic movement. My parents, uh, my dad um, got a degree in business and he was always involved in some business. Um, And my mom is a professor. So my mom was always an inspiration for me um, because she was the one in the intellectual tract of being a professor. I went to high school in a Jewish um, high school, a Jewish day school. The name of the, the school is Yiddish Shule in Mexico, the, the Yiddish School in Mexico. It's one of the top high uh, uh, high schools in Mexico City, even among any other private non-Jewish um, Mexico City high schools. That's what it was when I graduated from that, that high school. Mm-hmm. I don't know anymore. Uh, during uh, high school, um, I decided that I wanted to do something related to organic chemistry. And part of this had to do with my one of our teachers, which are normally inspiration, which was Rebecca Rochman. She's the best teacher I've ever had. And I've been through many teachers as I did undergrad and masters and PhD. She's still the best. And um, she was always the best and an inspiration. So she taught us math and organic chemistry and the organic chemistry she taught us in high school. I will say, was the organic chemistry that I learned in college at my maybe third level of organic chemistry. When I got to the third class of organic chemistry, I was learning what she had taught us in high school. She was amazing. I was very involved in Nea Kiva, which I think also developed part of my personality and my leadership skills. Ne'akiva is a modern Orthodox youth organization. And I also competed in a Hidonatanach, which is a competition for, um, uh, the Tanakh, which is the Torah, Nevim, and, and Um I did that um, in high school, and when I was in high school, my parents were very traditional, but they were not, um, they were, they didn't keep a kosher home, and they were not keeping Shabbos, and so I started this journey when I was in high school, part of it because of my school, and because of Nechiva. Um, the first job that I had was tutoring. I tutor chemistry and math. Um, and Hidon Tanakh, I, I was third place in Mexico and the first two um, spots go to Israel to compete for Mexico. And so I, I got caught really short. Uh, but I decided that that was, I was going to make that maybe failure if you want to see it this way into a victory by after I competed, I helped students um, get prepared for this um, for this contest. And the first student that I study with um, actually did amazing in Israel. In Israel they have two competitions, one for everyone, which is on Yomatz mode, where normally the Israeli kids win. And because of that, they also have another one that it's Hidonat Futsot. It's just for the diaspora without the Israelis. Well, my first student that I trained was first place in the diaspora Hidon. Yay, we were so happy about it. And the second student that I trained/slash um, um, uh, coached did not win the Hidon at Futsot, but he climbed over one of the Israelis in the in the real in the real um, competition. So. I was happy that we were able to turn around the, the maybe little failure into successes through other people, through my students. And that was a lot of satisfaction as a student. Then I went to uh, undergrad in Mexico at uh, UAM, or the Universidad Autónoma Metropolitana, and I started um, studying uh, food engineering. And the food engineering is part of the biotechnology department. And the other degree that they offer in that biotechnology department is industrial biochemical engineering. And very soon after I joined the school, I got involved with a, uh, with a student organization and they, they organized the biotechnology week, student, um, student week. And through this um, um, organization and through this biotechnology week, I met someone who became a future inspiration for me, which is Dr. Sergio Reva. He had just won a national ecology, ecology prize, and he was working with microbes that can clean streams that come out of factories uh, by eating the pollutants that come out of those, those streams. Mm-hmm. Um, I met him through the biotechnology week, um, we chatted a little bit, he actually told me that he was Jewish too, because that's something that I always, you know, I'm very proud of, and that he actually went to school to one of the Jewish day schools with one of my aunts, because as, heard as, he, as soon as he heard my last name, he recognized the last name and that's how we started with the Jewish geography connection. Um, he was never my professor. There was a class that he taught every year and the year that I was supposed to take that class, he took, um, um, he rested from teaching the class and someone else taught me that class. Um, but he was always in touch with me, always an inspiration. And he helped me a lot with ideas for my PhD and helped with the, the ideas of my Fulbright scholarship. And he'll come back later in the. And also he was an inspiration for me to switch. I switched to industrial biochemical engineering instead of food engineering, which is what my degree is on. Um, after I finished my um, my undergrad, I, I actually worked for a year, but I didn't put this in my journey. Um, um, what matters here is that I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I got my pastors and my PhD at Georgia Tech, and I also met my husband, got married, and had a first baby. All of that during my PhD journey. So. The first thing that I can say about God watching over me and my uh, divine providence was that um, my husband was in Atlanta. He had just finished his undergrad at Georgia Tech also. And um, he's not from Atlanta, he's from Texas, but he was there. And um, thank God for putting him on my path. Um, I met him and he's been the biggest blessing in my life and in my career. And this is one of the things that when I talk to women about being successful in their career, having a good partner is critical. Critical because we always need that support. So he's been a support and a cheerleader, and has helped a lot at home with the kids and in anything, um, anything needed. So I, I am I am blessed um, with a good husband. Then, um, on my PhD pro- project, um, I had a loose a loose project. And one day I came up with an idea of something that I thought was gonna be really useful based on a lot of things that my PhD advisor used to tell us. And and was that there was this process where the very last step of the process is really critical for bioremediation. And so if we could identify the gene that encodes for that enzyme of of that last last step, you could use that gene as a biomarker and use it for bioremediation. And so I came to his office one day with the whole idea of how I was going to proceed to identify this gene. And this is what he told me. He said, "A postdoc in Stanford is doing this already. He's looking for that gene that you're looking for. And you know what? He most likely will find it before you because A he started before you and B you're a PhD student, he's a postdoc and you know, he's probably going to find that before you." But I really thought that that was a great idea. And honestly, I didn't have any other great idea. So I thought that I would pursue and continue forward. And I worked very hard Um, as many PhD students do. That's part of the job. That's part of the description. Created my vessel to receive my blessings. I found a gene that seemed to be what we were looking for I I proved through some experiments that this was the gene that was transcribed when we had the activity that we needed. So I proved that this was a gene that actually encoded for this enzyme that we were looking for. And um, you must be thinking, what happened to the Stanford group? Well, here's another place where I think that God is watching over me, and I had huge Eshgaha Pratit here. We all thought that. There was a single gene that if I looked for this gene on some bacteria that were the brother of the the bacteria that the Stanford group was looking for, we would all find the same gene and that would be the biomarker that we were looking for. Well, there was not a single gene. So the gene that I found was slightly different than the gene that they found on Stanford, which by the way, they did find it before me. My advisor was right. They found it a few months before me. Um, And even though they find it before me, there's two important things. One is that because it wasn't the same, I still had the opportunity to publish it. And the second thing is that they took so long to publish the their results that our results were published in the same journal, just a month apart. So I think this is like amazing. You know, uh, one of those things that was amazing um, in my journey and that some people call it luck. I call it, I have the brachas, the blessings coming from above. So this was all good. Um, Then I had a baby during my PhD. That's my first son, Yossi, who's now a freshman in college in 2003. And um, had a baby, finished writing my dissertation, papers. Um, And then the next question is like, what do you do next? What do you do next after your PhD? And so I had a few balls in the air and a few possibilities. Ideally, I should go back to Mexico because I came with a Fulbright scholarship. And when you come with a Fulbright scholarship, you you should go back to your country for two years, which this is a whole other story about how I had a lot of uh, protection in order to be able to stay here without doing that, going back to Mexico, but I'm not gonna talk about it today. But that was a possibility. And I had a few jobs lined up if I I needed to go back to Mexico. Um, I, had a few connections at the Center for Disease Control since I was in Atlanta. And um, through these connections, I submitted a fellowship for a postdoc at one of the labs at the Center for Disease Control. And a professor at Rice University was um, also a big uh, advocate of my work. And they were all males and he really wanted to hire a female. So he also convinced me to apply for a faculty position. And I had a few good possibilities, but it was really not clear to me what was the best path forward. So I remember very vividly that um, I, I've been going to the mikvah once a month since I got married, because this is another of the mitzvahs that, that my husband and I keep, um, family purity. And I remember that every time I go to the mikvah, there's something special I pray for. And I remember clearing, uh, praying that day that I said, Hashem, please send me a good opportunity and a clear path forward. Send me something that it's so clear that this is the opportunity that I need to take, that it's hard for me to even think about it. Um, that was what I asked for. The next day, I received an email from Dr. Bruce Friedman. Dr. Bruce Friedman is an amazing um, Scientist researcher in environmental biotechnology who had just been hired to come start a center here at Arizona State University, the now Swedish Center for Environmental Biotechnology. And I remember when I got his email, I told, and he was he was approaching me about a postdoc in his lab. He was recruiting me to come do a postdoc in his lab. I remember telling my husband, the only person that I can think about that would have been a better opportunity for me is Perry McCarty. He is Bruce's PhD advisor and he's retired. So there's no one that I can think that I could do a better postdoc with than Bruce Reitman. Fast forward, just so you know how amazing this person is and he's been amazing as a mentor, as everything. 2018, Bruce Reitman got Stockholm Water Prize, which is like getting a, a, a Nobel Prize in water treatment. This is the person that brought me to Arizona and that has been my mentor. This is the reason why we moved to Arizona initially to be a postdoc in his lab. Um, And I can only say big blessing and has been a great opportunity from beginning to end. We still run some projects together. Um, Okay, postdoctoral position. I told you that I came as a postdoc and if any of you knows anything about about, um, how things work in academia, Um, Normally, this is temporary, like you go do a postdoc, you finish your postdoc, and then you find a faculty position somewhere else, not where you did your postdoc. So that's what was in my mind when we moved here. This is the Biodesign Institute, which is where I did my postdoc, and right now my office is right here um, in the same institute, but in the other side of the institute. And when we moved here, it was a provisional move or that's what we thought, um, transitional move. And um, someone told us about Chabad Center in, um, in Chandler. Uh, it wasn't this pretty, it was a storefront. When we moved here, um, I honestly knew nothing about Chabad and nothing about the Lubavitcher movement. We just wanted a shul that we could walk to because we kept Shabbos and we wanted a shul that we could walk to that was not too far from the university. So we moved to Chandler in 2005 with this possible transitional move. Um, I actually learned a lot about the Lubavitcher movement, which I had no clue about. Um, Some lessons from this movement have really inspired me. Um, My husband and I got great support and have learned a lot from Rabbi Mendy Deutsch and his wife, Sterni. Um, Great support from the community, great friends and also support Um, and we become an integral part of the community, we're still here uh, after thinking that this was our provisional move, of course, because this was a postdoc in 2005. And I have to say also that I was honored in 2017 by the Women's Circle for my research accomplishments. And the reason I'm putting this in here is because when I was honored by this uh, group of women in the synagogue, that created a big flip in the way I, perceive things with with the shul, with the synagogue, because I always thought that the model, especially for um, very very observant people, was that you're only valued if you're a mom, and you're at home, and you're doing all the mom things, and when I was honored, I wasn't honored for making kiddushes, or for doing things with the preschool, or for any of the small things that I do some of those in the shul, but for my work and for some of the accomplishments in my work. And that that was really, really nice to see, that that was appreciated and, and that um, was uh, something to be honored about. Okay, so I interviewed for a t- tenure track position when I was six months pregnant. So I came as a postdoc and the second year of my postdoc, Dr. Bruce Rittman called me to his office and he said, there's two positions upper, open for a tenure track. Uh, faculty would you interview for one he loved what I was doing with his students and he didn't want me to leave he wanted me to stay and continue being his collaborator that's me as a postdoc and I write in here that I interviewed six months pregnant this is very important because I was obviously pregnant this was my second child and I was interviewing um in a department where they, they were all males and um and I got the job. So that's great. And I like to say it because it speaks highly of my colleagues also. And I think that's, that's pretty important. And so I worked really hard, again, as a postdoc, created more of my vessels. And at the end of my postdoc, I was a, uh, Bruce actually was a pros, approached by a gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic, who is John DeVase. And thanks to him, we started our first gut microbiome project. It came to me. You know, in a silver platter. I didn't have to look for that because this gastroenterologist was looking for me and was just looking for the methods that I had to be able to help him. And um, we got a small grant together from AOASU, and this started my journey, my journey into the gut microbiome world, which has been one of my many more success stories that came from this. So then I had a baby in my transition between postdoc and, um, and faculty position. Um, Rina uh, was born in March of 2007 and my faculty position started in August of 2007. And so very happy with my baby, but of course that brings some challenges when you start an assistant professor position uh, with little kids. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm not gonna hide it, it's challenging. And so the requirements for an assistant professor are, you need to teach good, you need to have good evaluations, you need to do service, which when you are a female or a minority, you get more of this service because you're a a female or a minority and you need to bring in funding. Federal funding is very important and not easy to get. And so this journey with a toddler and an infant was not an easy one. that's an understatement. It was, it, was, it was really a hard journey, but again, worked really hard, <laughs> created my vessel. My first three years, I had no success bringing my own federal funding grants. I had some grants with Bruce because he would submit the grants and I would help him and we would collaborate, but you need to show that you can do it also by yourself. Um, so on my first, you get reviewed after three years. So on my first three year review, uh, I said, "Okay, you're doing well, but you really need to do something to prove us that that you can do it by yourself." Uh, and um, one of the things that was requested from me was to get an NSF Career Award, which is not an easy task. It's something that only ten percent of assistant professors get, and it's very prestigious. Um, but you know. As you still trusted in me and I had great mentors. I had Bruce and I had another mentor that I didn't mention on my presentation, Paul Westerhoff, who has always been a cheerleader and a mentor, um, you know, helped me push me on different directions to do things that I wouldn't do otherwise. And the summer of 2010, I dedicated most of the summer to writing this career proposal grant that was very important. And at the end of the summer, as soon as I submitted my proposal, I remember somehow I was in some class where Sterni Deutsch told us that you're allowed to make deals with God. You're allowed to tell God, hey, if I do so and so, would you do this for me? You're allowed to do that. And I said, okay, God. At the time I used to wear pants, which this is really normal in modern Orthodox communities in Mexico or around the world. Um, and I used to say like, oh, I love my pants. I'm never gonna stop wearing pants. But I said, God, If you grant me this one, I'm gonna stop wearing pants and I'll be all skirts from now on. So God listened to me probably. And at the end of 2010, I got an email from the NSF uh, engineering director telling me that my career proposal was gonna be funded. So got rid of all my pants when shopping. You don't see me wearing pants other than for exercise since then, since 2010. And at the same time, I also got a very prestigious grant from NIH, which is um, an R01 uh, grant. Um, This is the fruit of my collaboration with John DeBase, who I mentioned before, and Bruce Reitman is also uh, part of this. So at this point I had secure tenure because these two very strong awards were it. You know, it was a home run that year. Um, so I got here my career award and my NIH award in 2011 and, um, and, 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 and that was super important. But another thing that I had mentioned is that throughout my journey, I always kept Chavez and I always kept every yamtov. um, they have been a huge blessing for my family. They actually helped a lot for work balance, um. That's, that's, that's the day that I unwind. That's the day that I play with my kids. That's the day that I'm with my family. There's no computers, there's no telephones. Um, and I, 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 um, I, That was never something to negotiate or to compromise. It was something that I think has helped and has helped a lot in the journey. Um, all my researchers and my collaborators know that I'm not available. I'm not available Friday after sundown. Um, don't send me emails, well, you can send me emails, but I won't read them till after. Don't call me because I won't take your phone call because my phone is actually off. Um, and same with the Jewish holidays with the young Tovs. And so I also had the amazing fortune to meet Jim Adams, who leads the autism uh, research, a big operation of autism research at Arizona State University and always believed that there was some connection with the gut and with the microbes that live in the gut. Uh, He believed that, but he didn't have the methods and the tools to prove that. And so the match was amazing and has been amazing. And we've we've had a great partnership um, that has helped um, him, some of our students and many people, Um, thank God. So Jim Adams was part of uh, the organization of an international symposium for autism a few years ago. It was autism and the microbiome, and I remember seeing it written on an email where he told the other person who was his, uh, who was the key organizer of the of the conference. He said, "If you want Rosie, it cannot be on Saturday." And this symposium was being planned for Friday, Saturday, and um, they decided to change it to do it Thursday and Friday, so so Rosie could be part of the symposium. So that's that was my first pretty proud moment of, you know, you can do it and it's helpful and it might be helping others. I had another um, symposium, an international symposium on host metabolism that was in Florida. They invited me as a speaker and as soon as they invited me, I realized that the dates were on Pesach, on Passover. Um, So I replied and I said, thank you for the invitation. I would love to attend, but this happens to be on Passover. And so I guess this went back to the organizing committee and they probably realized that maybe this affects more than just me. And they decided again to move the symposium to a different day to a few weeks later. So it wouldn't be on Passover. And so I was happy that they did that. And of course I was happy to attend. And so then I I was promoted to associate professor in 2013. Um, And from my associate professor to my professor journey, there's not that many um, stories or my, my goal was to move quickly from associate to full professor, which is what Bruce always told me to do. So I did it as fast as I could, but there's many things that I've been working on since I was an assistant professor that um, became more solid between that, that step between assistant and, and full professor. Um, so some of the things that I've been working on that I mentioned really briefly, um, but, um, I want to tell you a little bit more about is the microbes that live in our intestines and how they affect our metabolism. They produce, um, vitamins, they produce metabolites, they interact with our immune system, with our brain and with our liver liver. And one of the big things that my center is doing right now is Uh, figuring out out how we can manage these communities to um, uh, increase health, and maybe how can we use these microbes also as biomarkers for health um, and disease. And so some of our first uh, research that was um, captured a lot of attention had to do with uh, bariatric surgery and how this changes the microbes in our intestines. Uh, We've done work with, um, I know this sounds gross, but fecal microbiota transplants, which is really using microbes from from feces, from healthy donors to change microbiota in um, individuals and with diet. And one of the studies that um, has captured um, the most attention um, in my field is one we did on autism, where we changed the microbiome through this modified fecal microbiota transplant. And what I'm showing you on this graph is, and this is again, I have all the blessings to to achieve these things. Um, You can see the children that started our study. uh, This is CARS, which is childhood autism um, rating scale. Um, I put some lines in here to the notes, severe diagnosis, mid to moderate and minimal. You can see that most of the children that participated in our study, these were 18 children, were on the severe scale. You can see here after 10 weeks of treatment, many of them improved and dropped to the mid-moderate and some, some to minimal, um, more improvement eight weeks later. And when we came back two years after treatment to see how they were doing, many of these children were either in the mild to moderate um, category or even in the category where they would not be Consider in the spectrum anymore. Some of them did not improve, and this was an open-label study, so there is a placebo effect. We are aware of that. So this this study captured a lot of um, attention, and I have a clip here from um, from one of the the news networks. That if there's time, I want you to see it, but I'm going to leave it till the end so we don't have to flip back and forward. And if not, it's on the on the slides. Um, one of the things that I like the most about this clip is it it captures one of the children that we treated and his mom. Um, and it's just really um, eye-opening to see how um, some of these lives are, are changing or can be changing through the work that we're doing um, in my lab. And that, that also uh, inspires me. And so uh, back on the journey, um, because this research was so... Um, capture a lot of media attention. Um, The Economist wrote about this research. And Dr. Sergio Reba, who I mentioned before, happened to read The Economist. Um, And he he emailed me and he said, I read about your research in The Economist. Can I nominate you for an award? And so he nominated me for this Distinguished Alumni uh, um, Award from my institution uh, in 2019, uh, which was awarded. And um, this is also, I would say, a cute story for me because when I married my husband, Wolchansky, I chose not to change my last name. And one of the reasons I said I'm not changing my last name is because one of these days I will do something big and I want my high school and my college teachers to know that it's me. And if I change the last name to Wolchansky, they will have no clue who this person is. And so when Sergio emailed me and told me that he had read about my research in The Economist, I was like, okay, that day has come. This is a big thing. Um, So I'm happy that I kept my maiden name so people that grew up with me know that it's me. Um, And um, after I became um, um, promoted to full professor, I had the opportunity to think about what was the next thing that I wanted to do at ASU. Um, Bruce Rittman and my other mentor, Paul Westerhoff, sat me and said like, so what do you wanna do? Do you wanna be chair of a program? Do you wanna be you know, dean? And I said, no, I really love research. Um, so what I would really like to do is um, have my own research centers, be the director of a research center that focuses on this gut microbiome stuff. They said, okay why don't you write a proposal? Them and the director of the Biodesign Institute, Josh Laber actually uh, approached me um, and we'll pitch it to the president and maybe you can have your own center. And so that happened um, in an interesting way because the center started in 2020. I pitched my center, I had a presentation for the president on December of 2019. And he said, okay, Send me the business proposal, which I was working on. I finished working on that on February of 2020. And I was wondering if my center was still gonna happen when the world started changing in March of 2020. But ASU was very excited about the idea and I got my offer letter as the center director in August of 2020. And um, I started my center, which I'm working on right now. And I'm, I'm pretty happy. Um, still being a professor and being the center director. And here I can show you my current families. This is my, my family, my Yossi baby, my Rena, my husband, me and Theo who we adopted during the pandemic. And here's my research group. And so with this, I hope um, that I show you a few points where I'm doing work, hopefully to fix the world or to help the world or to help people. Um, constantly trying to make a vessel through hard work. Um, People and connections are very important and that I see Shabbat and the holidays and the Yom Tovim um, enhancing my work and not being a source of problems or limitations but something that helps. And um, if you want to learn more about my research, I added some links, uh, especially if you get the, the, the link to the presentation. Um, this is, these two top links are in simple language because it was done by a, um, I think it's a professor, a media person at ASU that, that deals with general topics. It's called Ask a Biologist for the, for the uh, general public. Um, this is my center website. And here, if you want my publications, you can find them all here on Google Scholars. Um, Here's my email, DrRosie at ASU.edu, the center link. Um, I'm hiring. Um, I have openings for a microbiome postdoc technician, and I'm actually hiring faculty in the center. And if you want to help me make the vessel bigger also, we can always take donations um, of funding that will go through the research um, that we're doing right now. And with that, um, I'm happy to take uh, any questions or if it's okay, I can play the video and then we can take questions.
2: Search right here in the Valley. And this ask? is giving hope to so many families and people living with autism. Oh
3: yeah, we've all heard about what you eat can impact your health. And in this case, new findings in the connection between your gut and your brain could hold the cure for those living on the spectrum.
2: Our John Genovese talked with a family overwhelmed by the results they are seeing all from the study led by ASU
3: researchers. What's that right there? It's a kid in Paris. Ben Bonarotti has a passion to create from paintings to these special shoes and a collection of drawings.
1: Which one do you like the best? A
3: crab. At age three, the now 15 year old was diagnosed with autism. Mom Heidi says they tried everything. Then, five years ago, Ben's doctor suggested he take part in an experimental study. Introducing bacteria from the fecal matter of someone healthy into Ben's digestive system.
1: When I first heard about it, I I was a little um, skeptical.
3: The study lasting a few months, but within days, Heidi says she noticed
1: a difference. He would not get up in the middle of the night. The lights would not be on. Um, over the second week, the lights were off at night and he stop wetting the bed. There's been a lot of research that shows that there's a connection between the gut and the brain.
3: ASU researchers, doctors Rosa Krokmalnick brown and Daewoo Kang are among those behind this revolutionary study. All 18 kids who took part, including Ben, have autism and had gastrointestinal problems. But two years after the study ended, the team found participants' GI issues were almost completely eliminated and their autism symptoms reduced by nearly 50%. This is fascinating because we didn't expect that kind of improvement. Ben, now a seventh grader, was able to transfer out of a special needs private school and into a general-led classroom. Heidi calling it all a miracle.
4: And it's come so far, and we've had so many angels
1: um, on our journey. And I know if it weren't for God putting those angels on our path, he wouldn't be where he is today.
3: A teen with limitless potential. What do you want to be when you grow up?
1: A doctor. Why is that? Because I take care of people.
3: John Genovese, ABC 15, Arizona.
2: That is incredibly heartwarming, right? Uh, Ben, he's doing well. He's heading to summer camp on his own. As for the research team, they want to stress they do not have a treatment yet in hand. It was a small study with a lot of factors. They still need to carry out larger trials with more people involved. And that, of course, will require a lot more funding.
3: But this really does speak to how your diet works and getting fiber, fruits and veggies, all of that kind of connects to how it impacts your overall health. Really interesting stuff. Absolutely. Good on this, John Genovese.
2: This morning, it's revolutionary research right here in the Valley. And this is giving hope to so many families. Wonderful. Well, this was certainly a very
4: inspiring um, talk. And I am curious if anyone has any questions. Okay, Lauren, looks like you're the first.
0: I always seem to be the first one with a question. Um, the, the research is fascinating. Um, how close are you to having large-scale studies um, in in several centers.
1: So we're running right now two studies um, that are larger, I mean not really large, but larger than what we run, one with adults and one with children. Um, Unfortunately, I'm going to say unfortunately because this has been really challenging. We started the adult study before the pandemic and the pandemic did uh, affect uh, almost any clinical trial that was going on. So we just finished our last sample on this adult study, and I know that even just analyzing the data will be very challenging because we had the pandemic in the middle. Um, so we're running two larger studies right now, and I do have to say the child study, the the, the adult study, um, was funded by Department of Defense. We were able to get uh, federal funding for that, even though it was a small amount of money for what we need. Um, uh, The child study, a lot of it has been funded by by families, which is great. We did a a big GoFundMe account and uh, some families were so excited about our research um, that, that helped us push forward with children. And so that's where we are right now. Um, we need to um, analyze the results of these two trials that we're running. My, my ideal and my goal would be to identify key microbes and key metabolites that are important. Because if I don't think it's one microbe, by the way, I think it's a team of microbes. But if we can identify microbes that are important, we can grow them in the lab. We don't have to rely on people. We can grow them in the lab in fermenters. Um, so that's, that's our hope, you know. and I hope I'm here to, to to be able to take it into action,
4: Joan. It looks like your hands up.
2: Uh,
1: yeah, I have one quick comment and then a quick question. Um, I really
2: appreciate what you're doing on a personal note because I have a lot of like inflammation in my joints, and my doctor changed my diet based on stool samples and all that, and it seems to be really helping. Though I never thought that the pain in my joints had anything to do with my gut, so I really appreciate what you're doing. And on a personal level, I I appreciate it. Um, But on a religious level, and I'm not as Torah observant as you are. I'm not as learned as you are. I'm wondering, because I know a lot of modern Orthodox
1: Jewish women who wear pants. And I'm wondering why you think God wouldn't want you to. I know. I mean, there, there's many levers and many things. People would also ask me, depending where you are, why I don't cover my hair all the time, which I do for show, by the way. I I never go into a show without a hat or without without a head covering. But on a daily basis, like now, I'm not wearing my hair my a hat, so it's it's a it's a dress code. And so, um, I I had that same kind of um philosophy when that you're saying, what's the problem with wearing pants? Because the, if you go to the Torah, the ruling is that you're not supposed to wear men's, men's clothes, but you're not wearing men's clothes. You're going to the women's department and buying your pants in the women's department. There's many reasons why you can go back and forward. But but the reality is that, you know, it's kind of, it, it's a little bit of a label. Like when I was in Israel as a teenager, and I remember wearing jeans and I used to make kippot. I used to make kippots through God, right? And and um, needed kippas, which is a level of religious religious in Israel, right? And so I so many times had people in the bosses tell me, I don't understand, a girl wearing pants, making a kippah doesn't make sense because it's a contradiction. Um, it's kind of like, it, it kind of puts you in a bucket, um, so. Um, I I didn't think it was going to happen when I made the promise (laughs) that I would stop wearing pants. Um, I have friends that laugh at me because they said, you've said many times you wouldn't leave your pants, but I promised it. And when you promise it, you have to keep your promises. Um, I do know that now that I don't wear pants, um, there is a certain perception of your level of, um, I would say, religiosity, or I don't know how you want to call it, based on how you dress, which... I don't agree, to be honest with you. I think it comes from within. You know, I think that a lot of what you do and how how much, um, there's a lot that comes from within and not from how you're dressed. Um, but I just promised it and I do it. You know, it's just, yeah. So I don't know if I answer your question, but. Yeah. So, and, and just to add to that answer for me, when I wear skirts, because my pants were something I love so much, it's just thanking God. You know, it's like acknowledging that God did something for me and thanking God for giving me the opportunity, basically. So it has a special meaning for me.
3: Rosie, I have a couple of questions that relate to your expertise, but um, at the same time, they're very different. So first question, do you believe that spiritual practice can directly affect microbiome? And second question, if, So I meant directly, it means not through practice, but through meditation, prayers. And second question if you do have, this is not about belief, if you do have data that Mm -hmm. some Kashrut rules can affect the biome of it.
1: So, two great questions. The first one there's been a lot of studies that show that uh, anxiety affects the microbiome. Um, and I would say that when you're, when you're, um, have faith and when you are more spiritual, normally your anxiety levels are lower. So I would correlate your spiritual practices to lowering anxiety. And I would change your microbiome because there's, there's a two way direction. There's the gut brain and then the brain gut. So I do think that being a calmer person or a more, um, leveling that anxiety. And if religious practices help you with that, which it has helped me when I'm, ge- when I'm very stressed, I pray, I pray, I say to heal him, I do a little bit of meditation. So if that helps you, that helps your microbiome too. That's number one. And number two, it's funny that you're asking this because there's a person that is super famous doing the microbiome who also has been a great uh, supporter of my work. His name is Rob Knight. And he started a project that is called um, the American gut. In this project, you can send your sample and they'll sequence it, um, they get results. And when he started the American gut, he actually invited me to be one of the scientific advisory wherever, and I was listed. And when I saw him on the first uh, conference that I saw him, I had this idea, but we haven't done it. I would like to look at the gut microbiome and how it helps or how it changes during Passover. I think that is probably the most dramatic change to your microbiome. And I honestly, if I could, I would like to look at two different populations. I would like to look at the Lubavitcher population, and I will tell you why in a second, and about like the more modern orthodox or conservative population that it's matzah and it's processed stuff, but stays away from hummets. And so I always thought that that would be an, a, great, a great project. And I have a very strong hypothesis that the gut microbiome changes that week. So I can say about Passover, most likely your gut microbiome changes on Passover. I don't know, generally, Kashru's questions, it's more like about how you manage your diet, right? Because you could be kosher and be vegetarian, and that will make a big difference than being a kosher and a huge carnivore. That's more important for your diet than if you're kosher or not. But Pesach, I'm sure it changes. I'm gonna give the last question to Janie. Heydrich. Thank you
2: so much for sharing your journey. Um, it was marvelous to follow you and, and your developments, but to me, the underlying inspiration was that it was not about you, it was about Tikanolam. And um, I think that's an, that's an enduring message to all of us. So um, thank you very much. I did wanna add that about 60 years ago, I did some research on uh, bacteriophage. And that was interesting. So I really appreciate the the scientific end of what you did.
1: Thank you for your comment. And I I always think that what I do is not about me. Like I want to create leaders. I want when I'm working with my PhD students, I want them to to grow up, to be leaders, to go into their careers. I want to help people. It's not about me. I'm just a vessel. That's how I I see it. I feel uncomfortable even saying that I'm successful, but people tell me that. So I'm like, okay, maybe I will tell you that I'm successful so I can tell you about my journey. So Julia um, said in the chat, and then I'll give it over to you, Eddie, real quickly. Um,
4: Julia said, if further studies determine that your research would translate into effective
1: treatment for patients,
4: what is the process timeline for turning your findings into treatments that are available for prescription to patients?
1: So the process is normally a long one. Um, I don't know if some of you have heard, because in the last two years, we've heard a lot about the FDA and about treatments. And so when uh, when, FDA saw the results that I showed you of our CARS treatment, they actually provided fast track to our treatments. So our treatment right now, FDA has it on a line of like, if they can show that this works also on a placebo controlled trial, which we're running, we'll run this faster because there's no treatment for autism. There is no treatment right now. There's no treatment in the market. So um, we're working towards
4: that, we'll see. Well, thank you for your exceptional work, um, Eddie. Did you want to take the last question before I take
5: us off? Yeah, no. Thank you so much. Um, more than anything, más un orgullo mexicano y judío. What a, what a joy to to have a, a Mexican Jew also join us here for for BBM. It just it warmed my heart hearing your story. I'm from Michoacán, and, and hearing everything you were saying just illuminated my day. This is probably one of the best parts of my day to put us up there. Um, my, my, my comment, which you kind of already alluded to, uh, my partner is, is uh, a music therapist and works with folks in the autism spectrum. Oftentimes what we see is that any time there's research that comes out, uh, a lot of the parents allude to there being a cure. How do you respond to that when when parents tend to look more for a cure rather than the adaptation of how their child is dealing with uh, autism? Thank yeah, you so are,
1: much. Yeah, many of them are looking for a cure and if you saw that the clip at the end they said researchers allude that they don't have a cure. I always say that to anyone who interviews me because we don't have a cure. You know, I don't, there's this controversial part. I think we can alleviate symptoms. I don't know that we'll ever find really a cure, but we can deal with symptoms. That's what I normally tell parents. And when you can deal, like in our case, we dealt with a lot of that gastrointestinal symptoms and that helped their behavior. So sometimes that's what you need to do. You need to deal with, with the symptoms and um, yeah. And if that, enhances their behavior, that enhances the whole dynamics at home too.
4: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Rosa, Coach brown for joining us today, for sharing your journey, um, how every aspect of your life is poured back into your career, um, your faith. And thank you for everyone else who's been here today. Um, we'd love to have you join us again this week. We have a program on Wednesday at 10 a.m. and on Thursday as well. Um, you can always find all of this on delibitmedrash.com under upcoming events. Thank you, everyone, and have a wonderful day.